This is the Author Archive podcast. In this episode, Liverpool. Liverpool, the Liverpool that the Beatles grew up in. The Liverpool that Brian Epstein grew up in. Linda Grant is from Liverpool. She wrote a novel called Still Here, which was published in 2009. When Linda Grant grew up, her parents were friends of Brian Epstein's parents. So, Still Here, what's it about? It's about two people. Um, it's about a man and a woman who are both in, I suppose, what you call middle age, late 40s, early 50s, um, Alex Rebick and Joseph Shields. And um, she has, Alex has come home to Liverpool because her mother's dying and um, Joseph has come to Liverpool to build a hotel. There's a lot of Liverpool there, because that's where you come from. It's where I'm from, yeah. I learnt from this that the Liver building was the precursor of the skyscrapers. Yeah, that's right. I, um, Liverpool's an extraordinary place and one which is you know, overlooked and treated with terrible contempt now by the rest of the country. But um, the architecture of Liverpool is some of the most important architecture in Britain. And because I'd chosen an architect for one of my characters, I needed to find out a little bit about it. And I was really astounded that buildings that I'd walked past, you know, all my life, in my childhood and teens, turned out to be, you know, really kind of architecturally significant. And the Liver building was, I think, the precursor of the Chicago skyscrapers. Because it was made out of concrete? Uh, the, the concrete, yeah, prefabricated uh, concrete, you know. So, and in fact, no, it was, a, it was a steel structure. It's got a steel core, um, which makes it sort of rigid enough to, uh, to stand up, yeah. It's, uh, it's a steel core construction. This Liverpool that you went back to, I mean, even your characters refer back to the Beatles. So mm -hmm. did you know the Beatles and, and that nice Brian? I always told him, I told Mrs Epstein that when he went, Queenie, when he went to London, he'd find a nice girl, but he never did. You know. uh, is that the Liverpool you grew up in then? Um, yeah, I, uh, I grew up in something which apparently doesn't exist because the rest of the world is always telling me that it doesn't exist, which is suburban Liverpool and suburban Jewish Liverpool. And my parents were friends with Brian Epstein's parents. And when I was in my very early teens, I was skiving off school to go to the Cavern Club at lunchtime um, when the Beatles were playing in the evenings, but uh, they'd um, you know, sort of gone off to Hamburg. But, um, but you still had the sort of, you know, the big Liverpool groups of which there were, you know, scores and scores at the time. And the Liverpool that I grew up in was this, you know, still thriving port city, one which had an enormous self-confidence. And also it had the Liverpool poets as well, you know, Roger McGough, Brian Patton, Adrian Henry. So being a teenager in Liverpool in the 60s just felt to me like being the centre of the world. It was the place where the Beatles come from, came from. It had all these groups, it had all this fantastic poetry, and it was just a really exciting place to be. And I knew that sooner or later I, I would write about it. So what's the relationship of Alex to this place? Um, Alex is from Liverpool. Her um, father is a doctor, a GP. Um, his parents, like my grandparents, were part of that emigration from Eastern Europe that was on its way to America. And um, her grandparents, like 
my grandparents thought they'd bought a ticket to New York and in fact had only bought a ticket as far as Liverpool but because they couldn't read the writing on the ticket. My, my grandfather actually walked around Liverpool for several days saying New York isn't it fantastic. Um, so her father has you know has been born in, in Liverpool the youngest of you know six or whatever it is children and um, is the clever boy is a GP and um, works in a surgery in Toxteth where he's regarded as something of a saint because of his commitment to social causes and improving the health of Liverpool but also as we find out you know as the book progresses one of the other reasons that he is held in high regard is that um, when abortion was made legal in, in, in Britain in, in uh, 1967 a lot of Catholic doctors wouldn't sign the consent forms and it was often the Jewish doctors who were prepared to sign the consent form. So he, he's a doctor who's performed a lot of abortions, you know, legally, or, or rather given this consent for a lot of abortions. So he's a sort of controversial figure. Um, and her mother has come on the kinder transport from Germany, and she's a different character altogether. She's very sort of patrician, um, comes from a very assimilated family, and can't believe that she's in this, this place when she thought she should have been going to America. But Alex is nouveau riche, nouveau mega riche. I mean, she's loaded. Six million or something? Well, between her and her brother, six million dollars, yeah, half each. So face cream or something? Face cream. Well, yes, it's a cleansing cream. Um, her mother has brought over from Germany with her um, a jar of this cleansing cream. Um, her father had had a factory in Dresden which made this cream. It was expropriated by the Nazis. And all she's got left is this cream. And her husband, who she meets in, in Britain after the war, manages to you know, have this analyzed, the sort of last traces of it. And she makes, she has it as a little home business. And then it builds up and builds up and builds up until finally they're brought out by one of the big, you know, kind of uh, cosmetics conglomerates um, for six million dollars. So my, my character, Alex, um, is financially all right. And she's able to do this, this work, which is um, that of doing the documentation work for the restoration of synagogues in Eastern Europe, because she has a private income from the sale of face cream. You have this awful kind of heartbreaking stuff in an old people's home, where this old woman who's been this charismatic and bright is just sitting in incontinence pads waiting to die. It's horrible, isn't it? Horrible. Mm. You wrote that with a certain power. Um, my mother, um, I wrote a, a family memoir, which was also about my mother, who um, had something called multi-infarct dementia, which is um, like Alzheimer's disease, but not quite different causes. And um, I, I suppose that there's, you know, a sort of the description in this book of, or, you know, of the home. And, and in particular, I think the feeling that I used to have when I went to visit my mother of sitting, you know, going into this home and seeing all these people, these wrecks sitting in chairs and how my mind was always turning back the clock. Because with a lot of these people, I knew what they would have looked like when they were in their 40s and 50s. They were people like my parents' friends. 
and you know I could see them you know e e you know as parents I could see them as young marrieds so I could see them as children and so you know what I wanted to do was to show that you know these these drooling wrecks in in this home had once been people and once you started to turn the clock back you know you were turning the clock back to that turn of the century immigration to Liverpool and further back still you know right to the origins of the city so it's a sort of thing about trying to turn back time well, yes because you, you you take Liverpool right back mm -hmm. until it was a little fishing yes. village yeah. um, and I can't even remember the mm. suburbs but you, yeah. you, you, you yeah. kind of paint a little picture yes yeah. Everton which is now forever sort of as being a yes. football team yeah. and, and Alex she's on her own mm -hmm. and she doesn't seem happy being on her own well I, I think that this book is actually a great deal about anger. I mean, a lot of these the characters in this book are angry about one thing or another. And Alex, who is 49, um, has had her teens and 20s during the sexual revolution, and she's a child of the sexual revolution, and she's somebody who has embraced liberation, has embraced freedom, and has decided to be a sexually liberated woman. And now she finds that at the end of her 40s as a single woman, that men just aren't interested in women of her age. But one has to say that they're also not interested in her because she's a very tough, uncompromising and extremely arrogant person. And she would very obviously put most men off. Um, so she's not a sort of, you know, archetype for all women of her age. This is just something about somebody of her age. But, but I did want to say, really, that, you know, if there are these characters in Philip Roth novels, you know, men very much like Alex, who have no trouble, you know, managing to have sex with anything that moves. But I think if you're a woman and you have that kind of disposition, then the position is rather different. But she says, here I am, 49, mm. and you, can, you, you paint this picture where she can almost feel the oestrogen mm. fading away and she can see the effect that it's having on her hands <laughs> never mind her internal organs and you get this feeling hey, I've got all this stuff time's running out we ought to be doing something yes I, I don't think you know there are many women who haven't looked in the mirror <laughs> and seen the signs of aging appearing on their face and on their hands and particularly you know as you get into your late 40s and early 50s and you realize that something you know biological chemical is going on inside your body and you can't help it and no and no sort of you know uh, cleansing cream or moisturizer will do anything about it but there is I think a sense of, of people facing aging and people you know facing the future and and you know realizing that you can't reclaim the past and that you've made decisions in the past which lead you to the place that you're in now and part of 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 that is about her doing all that and also realizing that she can't really be free because her parents are still sort of hovering around with these you know sort of assignments for her um, asking her to you know final wishes you know get this factory back in Dresden there's the Dresden dimension. I'm still stuck. I, I wonder what your face looked like. There's two pages which, in, in which she says, I'm a very vaginal woman. <laughs> um, and, and that's just one sentence drawn out from a whole narrative about what it feels like to be her. Driven, I mean, lust is the only word, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 
I've never written about sex before in uh, in any of my previous books. I've I've always stopped at the bedroom door, and I found it very embarrassing to write this. But I thought, you know, there are male writers who write unashamedly about sex. That you know they do it, and why you know Philip Roth being the great example of this, and why should a woman not do this? So. Um, I uh, it was sort of really between gritted teeth that I you know that that I did this and of course one of the great problems that you find is that people think I, I have her having a sex sexual fantasy about the Victorian engineer Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Brunel, yes, <laughs> a little guy with no hair. And, yes, but with a top hat <laughs> and a cigar. And it was looking at a photograph of this, and I just thought this is actually very funny the way you know he's standing there in this very sort of sexy pose. Um, and so I thought it would be such a laugh to have a sexual fantasy about Isambard Kingdom Brunel that it was a sort of way into me writing about it. But I did actually talk to some other women writers about how do you write about sex. And one of them said to me, one of, th one of the ways to do it is to do it from the male point of view. So uh, yeah, but it was, uh, it was certainly my first attempt at uh, writing in a sexually explicit fashion. How will you tackle dinner party conversations when the other people at the dinner party have read this book? <laughs> well, I would hope they would have the good manners not to raise it. <laughs> Um, I, I, all I would say is, you know, it's not autobiographical. <laughs> That's what we needed to just identify. Yeah, the book I is not autobiographical. The um, Israeli novelist Amos Oz said this wonderful thing. I heard him say it. He said, don't ask about whether it's autobiographical about the author. Ask whether it's autobiographical about you i.e., you know, is this book saying something which is, you know, that you can relate to in your own history, in your own life? That's what's important. That's the only significant thing. It's called Still Here. It's published by Little Brown. It's the latest from Linda Grant. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks. Well, it was the latest novel from Linda Grant when that interview was recorded.